Welcome to the Brett Boone Podcast, as we explore the mind of former MLB All-Star, Silver Slugger, and Gold Glove winner, Brett Boone, as he sits down with his friends from the world of professional sports. Brought to you by DraftKings Sportsbook. On this episode of the Boone Podcast, Brett sits down with former Major League All-Star and current Senior Vice President of On-Field Operations for Major League Baseball, Raul Abanez. Alright, let's do this! And now, here's your host, Brett Boone. Welcome to the Boone Podcast. I'm Brett Boone, and today on the program, I'm joined by an old teammate. In his 19 years in the big league, he had over 300 home runs, drove in over 1,200 runs, was a 2009 All-Star. He's currently serving as a Senior Vice President of On-Field Operations for Major League Baseball. I'm going to get to that in a moment. Ladies and gentlemen, Raul Banez. Raul, thanks for coming on the program. Thanks, Booney. Great, great seeing you at the winter meetings and great being on here with you. Thanks for having me. Very cool. All right. There was a poll taken and I read this little knickknack and I loved it. You were voted by, I believe, 290 peers. I want to know the year this poll was taken. Raul Ibanez was voted the second nicest player in Major League Baseball behind Tommy. Are you really the second nicest um, pr- probably not. Tommy's way nicer. <laughs> Tommy, well, I, I want to know is, is Dan Wilson in this, in this poll is, is big rude. John Olerud. Is he in the poll? Those are some of the guys I, I have to admit when I, when I, you know, I played with a lot of guys. I've got to admit Raul's on my list of nice guys. I got to admit that, but you, you were second, second. Yeah. I wouldn't put myself in anywhere near the, Big Rude and Dan the Man Wilson. I would I would not put myself anywhere near that category or that class. Those guys are way better dudes than I am. <laughs> they're they're way they're way better human beings. <laughs> but th- th- it's a funny poll just to be taken. Hey Raul, congratulations! What happened? Well, I, I was voted second. You were voted second nicest <laughs> baseball player. All right. Is there a trophy for that? No, there's no trophy for it. And I don't even know who came up with that poll or who they asked, but they didn't include for sure. They did not include Dan Wilson and John Olerud because they would have won the, the big roots, big root, just walking. I could picture him now walking in, you know, just with that goofy smile on his face, backpack, where I had a probably had some Ovaltine in the back in the back pot. Who knows? I mean, uh, what a <laughs> what a awesome dude. Awesome. Um Raul, the more I dig into you, you know, and we've known each other for a lot of years. We were teammates for a couple of years. Quite a remarkable career you had. And when we became teammates in 2004, we'll get to that in a bit. I just knew Raul Abanez, Kansas City Royals, really good player. You know, because when your time, when you were in Seattle before we uh, we became teammates, I was in the I was in the National League. I uh, didn't play against you. But when we were teammates, I just thought, Raul, good player, really good player. Kansas City Royals is coming to my team. We're going to be better for it. But I didn't know what you actually went through. I mean, you had quite quite a journey from getting drafted in 1992 to touching the big leagues in 2006. Or I'm sorry, touching the big leagues in 1996. And your first full season wasn't till 2000. And two, we had a big year, uh, but I just assumed you were in the big leagues the whole time, not going back and forth. You know, we all have our our journeys and we all have our time on the shuttle where we're, oh, we're going to triple A. We're going back to the big leagues. How did you get through six years of going up and down? You went to the minor leagues every year is your first six years in the big leagues. Where did you uh, take me through that time in your life? Yeah. Um, yeah, Booney, it was, it was definitely a tough journey. Um, you know, went from being a 36 round pick and no prospect to a top prospect to getting called up to the big leagues and going up and down back in those days, it was, they'd rather have the older guy that was predictable, you know, that they'd rather know that this guy was going to hit, you know, 240, 250 with 10 homers than give the young guy it was totally opposite of what it is today. So I just kept going back up and down. And I think the versatility you know, the fact that I came up as a catcher and I can go behind the plate and play first and, you know, play the all three alpha positions. I think that kept me in the in the big leagues, but it also had me bouncing back and forth. And there was no real opportunity at the time. I came up on the winning Mariners teams back then, um, you know, under under Big Lou, Sweet Lou Pinella. And Lou wasn't really 
the most patient of guys with the younger players. And, and understandably so, you had to win baseball games. So I learned a lot from Lou. I'm thankful for the opportunity. I'm thankful for the struggle, to be honest with you, because it, it really tested uh, my character. And it was not easy, Booney, like to sit here and say, oh, just keep persevering. I mean, there was days where I, I questioned my, my career choices and my life choices, where you're going on the shuttle back up and down and trying to work on stuff and trying to get an opportunity to stick. Thankfully, it all worked out because um, I went to KC as a non-tendered player um, in 01. And I actually got designated for assignment twice in May and all every all teams passed all 30 teams passed all 29 other teams passed uh and they called me back up in 2001 because they had nobody else in AAA and and the reason I know that Booney is because Carlos Febles when I got called up in Milwaukee after being in AAA he walked up to me and said hey I walked by the office I knew they were going to call you up today and uh the manager said sure call him up we have nobody else and I said, hey, thanks, Carlos. Thanks for the great. The great- <laughs> right, thanks. Appreciate the, appreciate the kind words. Um, you were born in New York. You grew up in Miami. Went to Miami Sunset. You were a catcher. Uh, Freddie Gonzalez. Give me a Freddie Gonzalez story working with you as a young high school uh, catcher, which I never saw roll catch, but. Uh, interesting. You were a 50th round pick out of high school. Give me a little Freddie Gonzalez and, and how he impacted your career. So Freddie was my idol. At the time, I was still an outfielder, but Freddie was my idol growing up. He would come down after the offseason, during the offseason, AAA catcher with the Yankees, and he would work security at, at my middle school. And, um, and so I would always look to him and talk to him about baseball. So he's a huge influence on me. Uh, and then once he started managing back then, it was the Miami miracle and he got into professional baseball. He'd always come back and give some of his time to the high school team. So Freddie was a guy that I really looked up to. I remember one time we had a coach who was really, really complicating hitting. And um, I started talking to him about trigger and launch and loads. And, and Freddie was like, whoa, 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 row, row, get a good pitch to hit, hit a line drive to the big part of the field. And walked away. And I was like, that was the smartest, easiest thing I've ever heard. <laughs> he simplified everything so well for us. And so he was just, when he got the managing job at the big leagues and as his career progressed, um, and we're still good friends to this day, he was just a guy that we always looked up to locally. He went to Miami Day. Charlie Green, who the legendary coach at Miami Day. Miami Dade's turned out a lot of big league, uh, big league players. It's a, a junior college in, in Florida. Uh, he was the Team USA. And I know I've mentioned this to you before, but as I was getting ready for this, I had to bring it up. Tell me about, did Charlie Green, was he the guy that had the umbrella defense? He did. He All right, did I, I want to hear about the umbrella defense. I go to Team USA. We had to go to Middleton, Tennessee, where everybody, you know, kind of congregated. It was 1989. They said, your skipper is going to be Charlie Green. Well, who's Charlie Green? I'm coming from USC. Uh, he's the Miami Dade. You know, head coach. Okay. You know, just like anything, it's a summer league team. You always play for new guys. And I remember the first day, I don't think I was very uh, uh, embracing of the umbrella defense, but he, but he puts us all out in the field and he drops this umbrella defense on it. It was, you can explain it to me better. It was something like the outfielders came in and it, it essentially, if you hit a, a fly ball, 220 feet, it was going to be an inside the park home run. And I remember sitting there, and every I'm looking around at Jeremy Burnett's and, and he's kind of giving me the what is going on. And and it was the umbrella defense. Tell me a little bit more about Charlie Green, because you actually played for him for for a, a decent amount of time, whereas I only had a, a, you know, probably six or eight weeks with him. Tell me about that umbrella D. Yeah, for sure. So so Charlie, you know, just a little back background on him. Really uh, strong disciplinarian. Shoes had to be polished. Hair had to be clean. Uniform washed. If you were, if you weren't a minute or two early, you were considered late. If you showed up at one o'clock sharp, you went home and you didn't get to practice or play that day. Uh, we had to sprint on and off the field, and nobody prepared us more for life and professional baseball than Charlie Green. So I, I just have to tip my hat to him for that. But the umbrella defense when we got there was. I th- I'm pretty sure if we were up by two or more runs, we played shallow in the outfield. And if we were, if the score was even or we were down 
then we played bigger. You opened up the defense. So his theory was to take away all the, you know, base hits and bloop singles. And in fact, I played right field. I think I wound up throwing out like five guys at first base because of that umbrella, that umbrella defense. But I'm sure that there were other times where it turned into a track meet because a 260 foot, you know, line drive turned into a, a, a triple. <laughs> I think we scrapped it though. Because, you know, he was coming. I mean, it's one thing to have your program and that's what you do in your program. And then you come and you get you're getting a bunch of different players coming from a bunch of different programs and no one's seen anything like this before. And we're kind of looking around. I don't think it went too well. I think we ended up scrapping the umbrella D, but I I had to bring that up because I remember that. Uh, I want to get back to your career. Ninety two, you're a 36th round pick out of Miami Day. And. You know, in today's terms, it'd be, well, kind of like you're a 36 round pick. You're not coming into camp with your chest pumped out like, hey, I'm the big guy. I'm the number one. You know how the guys do nowadays when you come from the draft. Hey, he was the second round pick. He's the fourth round pick. So this is where your journey starts. In rookie ball, you hit 308. I, I look through your minor league numbers. They were always solid. I mean, you get to 94, you're hitting, you hit 312 in a ball. You hit 332 with 20 homers and 108 in the Cal League in 95. You went to double A and hit 368 before you went to triple A. You get to the big leagues in 96, and that's when it all started for you. Uh, your first big league season or cup of coffee in the big leagues like we all have. You talk about perseverance. Just take me through that journey. Talk, take me through Lou being your first skipper. Um, he was not my first skipper. We've we've shared some stories early on in our careers about Lou. Man, uh, we have different personalities, but boy, was you're right when you say Lou didn't like young players. He was tough on me, and we had battles. I mean, we, I'd go into his office, and I mean, we were we were going to fisticuffs a couple times in my in my you know first time around with him. Uh, ended up being probably my favorite manager of all time, but. Early on, man, it was it was not a walk in the park. Give me uh, give me some Lou uh, when you first when you're first getting to the big leagues. So I first get to the big leagues. Um, I go to big league camp that year. I read Lou Pinella's book. It's called Sweet Lou. I read it in high school. So when I first get to meet Sweet Lou in person for the first time after having a really good year, um, I remember about <laughs> three days into it, and he goes, "You'll never hit in the big leagues that way, son." <laughs> So it was it was before we had even really started camp. And uh, and he he thought I was jerking my hands back too far. Remember, he used to like for you to just kind of walk away from your hands. But um, that was the beginning of my my journey with Lou. And I, I got to tell you, Booney, I learned so much under Lou and I learned so much about myself. And to be honest with you, I probably should have given off a little different vibe at times because because, uh, um, you know, Lou was, was, he wanted to win. He was relentless in his desire to win. Uh, but you know, I, there were, there are times in hindsight now where I probably should have gone in his office and just said, Hey, give me a shot to play. And I think he would have respected that, but just being, you know, respectful and waiting for the opportunity didn't quite, <laughs> didn't quite work out that well, but I learned so much from Lou. Um, he had some of the best one-liners ever. Uh, you know, there was a time when, uh, it was um, Al Martin ran into um, Guillen a couple of times. Um, he ran into the infielder a couple of times and, and he had run into him twice. And he was like, I was always in the dugout because I never played. And Lou was like, if, Jesus Christ, if we can get Martin to hit the ball, like he hits the infielders, we'll be in business. So I love Lou's one, one liners and um, learn so much from him. You're right though with Lou and how you deal with him. I mean, you have the personality, Raul. There's a reason Raul's voted second nicest. Um, <laughs> and I wasn't voted second nicest. Man, I'd have, I'd go round and round with him. I remember Lou one time. Uh, I'm, I think it's 1993. And I'm, I remember Raul. I remember it vividly because, you know, we're all, when we're young and we're coming up, we have different personalities and, and different traits and different body language. What we all want to do well, especially in those times, you know, you had to, you had to earn your stripes and you had to get the respect not only from your skipper, but from your teammates that you belonged and you were a big leaguer. We've already done what we needed to do in the minor leagues. And I remember a game against Cleveland and I'm hitting 328. I remember it. 
on the board. It's early in the season, obviously. And uh, I think I get two hits that game. And Eric Plunk comes in. The end of the game, ninth inning, he was the closer then for the Indians. And it was a close game. So I had one of those big at-bats with a, with a runner on third and less than two outs. I strike out. I swing at a ball over my head. And I come back to the dugout. Lou looks at me, you know, and Lou's only the way Lou can. And he goes, son, what the hell are you swinging at? I mean, this is the ninth <laughs> inning in front of all my teammates. I feel so, you know how you feel in that situation anyway. Now your skipper is yelling at you in front of your teammates. You're sick of getting sent to the minor leagues, back to the big leagues. And I remember throwing the bat at him, not throwing it like to harm him, throwing it at his feet and saying, hey, Skip, if it's so fucking easy, why don't you go out and hit it? And, man, I remember, you know, Buners in the dugout, and you know, a bunch of those veteran guys that kind of look at me like, whoa, Brett's in trouble. And the game ends. We end up losing. And sure enough, I go into my locker and I get that tap on the shoulder. Hey, Skip wants to see you. I go to his office. Sure enough, where did I do? I got sent down again. And that was just part of it. Uh, eventually, we came to terms and, and uh, I, I had that blowout. And I said, you just leave me alone. And he goes, all right, son. He goes, you're either going to be my second baseman for the next 15 years or I'm going to trade your ass. And I said, fair enough. And I went out the second half of 1993 and I did really well to the point where he was calling me in his office at the end of the year to, to bet on football games with me. And we had a really good rapport. I, I, I left the season. We were on good terms, although the press thought we were still fighting, but we weren't. And I got traded that offseason for Dan Wilson and the proud, you know, they thought Lou just traded it. No, it, the, the fact of the matter was, is we were at that time in, in Seattle Mariners history, we had a lot of young middle infielders and Dave Valley was retiring and they needed a young catcher. And Dan Wilson was a number one pick. And, you know, they didn't. You need to you needed to trade somebody with that wasn't making a lot of money. That was a prospect. So it made perfect sense for Danny and myself to to swap places. So uh, it ended up working out. I went to Cincinnati and in Atlanta and San Diego and then ended up coming back to the Mariners and playing for Lou again. The second time obviously was a completely different animal. But uh, uh, the, the stories we don't have enough time on this podcast for all the Lou stories. Um, I love that. I, nope. did, I didn't realize you and D, you and Dan got traded for each other. Was Ayala in that trade too? It was Ayala, yeah. <clears throat> and on the and on our side also was Eric Hansen. So it was Eric Hansen and Brett Boone for Ayala and uh, Danny. Nice. That's a, good, that's a good trade, I think, for both teams, right? Uh, well, both teams da- yeah. Well. Danny ends up you know playing out his career with the Seattle Mariners, having a great career. <clears throat> I ended up, you know, I had the luxury of coming back to Seattle and, and having some great years in the early two thousands with, with some great teams. And uh, so it all worked out for everybody in the long run. And by the way, when I got traded after the 93 season, I didn't take it personal at all. It was, you know, the press was oh Lou and Boone just couldn't get together. That wasn't the case at all. They didn't know what was really going on inside that clubhouse. All that had passed. Uh, Lou and myself had kind of buried the hatchet. We were on great terms. He just traded me because that it's business, and that's what made sense uh, for both organizations at the time. And it and it worked out for Danny and myself just fine. And and it really wasn't a big deal. You talk about perseverance. Where do you think you picked up that trade? I know your dad. Uh, Came over from Cuba in 1970. Um, tell me about how that happened and, and the influence your family had on you growing up. Good, good research, Booney. Um, yeah, so my parents came over from Cuba uh, with two young kids, my two older brothers, eight and seven years older than I am. Um, and uh, they came over, and my, my dad was a chemist in Cuba. Um, and so he was overseeing actually at one point answering directly to Che Guevara who had taken over, but constantly living in fear. Uh, cause you know, back then when Castro's regime took over, um, you know, people that my dad had worked with in the government, uh, would not show up to work ever again. So there was this constant fear that when you had to, you know, if you wanted to put in to leave the country there, you were afraid that there was going to be retaliation. In fact, they would 
spit at you. My mom was an accountant in Cuba, so they would spit in her, call her a traitor once she put in, um, you know, the paperwork to leave the country. So what they did was part humiliation. Um, they sent the men back then to go out and cut sugar cane in the field six days a week without seeing your family. And it was basically, it was almost like a prison camp, but it was, you had to work your way out of the country. So my dad had to do that two years. I think hearing those stories about what he overcame and what he gave up, they confiscated my dad's families, um, all of their assets. Uh, they confiscated their businesses and their land. And I think just hearing that where my dad was constantly preaching to my brothers and I, Hey, this is the land of opportunity. Um, you guys can get anything you want here. We've sacrificed a lot. If you just work your asses off, there's tremendous opportunity here. So we were never allowed to complain at home. We were never allowed to complain about how hard a coach worked us or if we ran too much or we just weren't allowed to complain. My, my parents came here and my dad's motto was, I didn't come here to be a burden. I came here to produce. So that was the mindset and the cloth that we got cut from. And my all, you know, my brothers and I, all three of us, um, you know, learned that most traits uh, firsthand from my dad. And that's, that's real life stuff. And, and uh, by the way, it's to be commended. I, I think we could use a little bit more of that, you know, when, when times are tough and, and, you know, it's, it's always tough with our own kids trying to teach and, and trying to be, you know, really di disciplinarians. It's tough being a, being a dad and having to do that, but it, it's, it works out so much better in the long run. If you, if you can just stay on that steady path uh, and teaching those values to the kids. Um, you ever been to Cuba? Never been to Cuba. I've, I haven't been to Cuba yet. At some point here, I will, but part of it was because we were playing all the time, Booney. And then, you know, working, traveling, going on vacation with your family, different places. But Cuba is definitely on our short list of places to visit. Yeah, I went there and on that team with Charlie Green. We went to Cuba. Interesting place, Raul. And, and from the, the little bit of background you gave me on your dad, I, I see that. Uh, when we were there, we were treated like uh, gold, the American baseball players. But how they treated their, their people in Cuba uh, – that was a sight to be seen. It, it was a really educational trip for me and, and kind of opened my eyes to, to reality. And like you said, you mentioned the land of the free and, and to be given an opportunity, how fortunate we are uh, to be in a free country. Um, let's get to 2002. <clears throat> you signed with the, uh, after, the, after 2000, you leave the Mariners and you go to the Kansas City Royals 2001. 280, 13, and 54, but you spent some time in the minor leagues again. 2002, finally. No minor leagues for Raul, finally. First full year in the big leagues. You, you've been there. You've been grinding since 96. You had 294, 24, 103. Was there something different about that year where you just sat down at the end of the year and said, everything I went through, finally, it's working out? Because, I mean, those are all-star numbers. Yeah, well, thank you. Yeah, you know, I, I should have clarify this so in may when i got sent down the second time designated for assignment um i'm on my way to the ballpark with aj hinch um and blake stein and i go hey i heard there's a guy in town his name is kevin seitzer who's a hitting guy i'd love to get his number because mike sweeney had worked with him joe randa had worked with him and everybody was raving he had a local cage so they said yeah we can get you his number so as i get to the ballpark i walk in the door and they're like hey raul can we see you a second so it was to tell me i was going back down <laughs> um to triple a so I walk over to AJ Hinch and Blake Stein. I'm like, hey, do you have uh, Kevin's number? It turns out I need it sooner rather than later because I'm going down right now. So um, I wound up meeting with Seitzer at his facility called Mac and Seitz. And in three days, Kevin revamped my swing, gave me you know, a new approach, a new lease on life. Um, and that was in 2001, I started getting the opportunity to play. So some, you know, when I got called back up a few days later, um, I got one at bat in AAA. I hit a line drive to left field off a lefty um, on, a, on a slider, which I hadn't done in a long time. And I got called back up to the big leagues. That's when the 280 13 happened. So carry that forward into 2002. Um, we wind up, uh, I was in a platoon situation and 
Tony Pena took over as manager. And this is, you know, to your point earlier about getting an opportunity. I was a 29-year-old, maybe 30-year-old, about to turn 30, uh, up and down guy, really, who had a half a season of success. And Tony Pena takes over two weeks into the season. Tony Pena calls a meeting. He said, um, they're not telling me who I have to play anymore. I've seen enough. I decide the lineup now. And after that meeting, he was very animated about it. He walked up to me, points at me, and he says, you tell me when you get tired because you're playing. And so I said, Tony, I never get tired. So he walked away, and that was the opportunity. Tony Pena was the one who had the guts as a rookie manager of giving an opportunity to a guy uh, who had really, you know, I was 29, 30 years old, beyond prospect, but he saw something and he saw enough in the quality of that bats that he started playing me. Um, and I wasn't performing, to be honest with you, but when he was 2002, I wasn't performing at the time. Uh, I, I was hitting under 200, but he saw something, gave me the opportunity, and that's how that season ended up that way. Back to the Mariners in 04. And that's, like I told you, I was I was naive. I thought, oh, we're getting Raul Bondi. He's a really good player. I didn't know what you had been through and, and the perseverance that you that you had to go through. You hit 304 and 04. Uh, your tenure with the Mariners then goes through 08. You, you drive in over 103 times, 123, 105. You hit 33 homers in 06. Uh, and that's when I got to know you. And and uh, I've got a lot of Raul Abania stories, but I, I really enjoyed being a teammate of yours. Everybody loves Raul. Um, but we had a lot of fun, and we still do to this day. It was great seeing you the other night at the at – the, uh, MLB convention and, and just getting the I like that and and for those of you out there Raul and myself we have a we have a different language we speak once in a while and it, <laughs> it's kind of funny let's talk about the cage situation in Seattle when you come back to Seattle we all have a routine let me set the let me set the tone for the for the listeners of the Boone podcast in Seattle there's a cage and before before the game you know, whoever that starting lineup, usually there's at least five or six of us that had a routine. Uh, we go to this cage right before the game, and then we'd proceed to go out in the field for for the national anthem and, and take the field. And, you know, at the time, Ichiro was there. Edgar was there. Uh, and they would hit off this tennis ball machine. I don't know if you did you use the tennis ball machine that I'm about to bring up? I did. I did. I use it for visual. I didn't hit off it, but I use it for. Yeah. Okay. Things. Yeah. So to set the stage, there was this gentleman by the name of Tom. Great guy. He could have got voted number two. Nicest guys, too. Never said a word, but was there. Loved the players. He had this machine that he had invented, and it, and it shoots tennis balls at you at about 120 miles an hour. And there were numbers on the tennis ball. And, and the concept behind it is you can track and track it. Eventually, you'll be able to read the numbers. Then you'll be or you'll be uh, uh, be able to read the colors on the tennis ball. Then eventually, if you get really good at it, you can read the numbers. A lot of guys use this machine. I would use it time to time, but I was more of an iron mic guy. Just turn the iron mic machine on. And I, that was my routine. So we'd all come down and, and have our routine before the game. Sometimes I'd get the if I got there late and I had to get onto the field, I would leave the balls and Tommy would be like, Booney, you just go play. You got a job to do. I'll pick up the balls. Well, I knew he wasn't an employee of the Mariners. He was a he was a guy trying to push his machine and get his machine out there. And he used to pick the balls up for me all the time. And I thought he doesn't have to do that, but it's it's really nice of him to do that. So, you know, as a nice gesture, once in a while, I would go down and give him a tip, give him a hundred bucks, give him a couple hundred bucks. Just tell him, thank you. I appreciate what you do now. I'm going to give the rest of the story to Raul Labonte. Let's <laughs> go ahead. Take it away. <laughs> so Tom is this great guy. Um, just super humble. Booney, how do your listeners know like the um, I know Boone t-shirts that you used to give us and your shirt said I am Boone? Uh, no, but you can bring that up. That That is an interesting point. Yeah. So and, and do they do <laughs> a lot, they of, a lot of guys on my teammate? Yes. That had t-shirts that said. I know Boone. And then I figured I got to make one that says I am Boone in case you didn't know. That was the culture back then in Seattle. That's what it was like in that Mariner clubhouse. Obviously, it was all in good fun. It was it was a shtick more than anything else. But as I always used to say, Raul, the city expects it. So, yes, of course, we all had those T-shirts. Continue. <laughs> it was so much fun. Yeah, it was totally done. 
and jest and in fun, good fun. And nobody could pull it off, but other than Brett Boone, nobody could pull it off. Um, so anyway, you know, Tom's this really nice guy, super humble. If you're in there, he's in there, tennis balls, you hit the baseballs during the game and he would say, don't worry guys, I got it. Or even during, you know, right before batting practice, don't worry guys, I got it. I pick up the balls. So Booney walks into the training room and, uh, <laughs> <laughs> one of my favorite stories of all time. <laughs> uh, so Booney walks into the training room and says, Hey, did anybody in here know that Tom is rich? And um, I, I said, yeah, I knew that. And you, you were like, well, why the hell didn't you tell me? <laughs> He's like, I, I gave him, I just, I've been giving him a hundred bucks every homestand to pick up, to pick up the balls. And so you proceed to tell us a story that Tom was reading a magazine and Scott Spezio's in there and Spezio's like, Hey, what are you reading today, Tom? And he, he had talked with Spezio about, cars that he collected and stuff like that. And he said, what are you reading? He said, Oh, I'm, I'm reading a magazine on flying. It was like a pilot magazine. And so Booney goes, what are you, what are you going to buy a plane? And Tom's like, ah, I've got two of them. Um, I don't know that I'm going to buy another one. So Booney says in the, in Booney's perfect tone, he goes, what are you rich? And he's like, ah, I'm okay. And he goes, wait a second. Are you Boone rich or Bill Gates rich? And Tom delivers the line of the century and says, somewhere in between. <laughs> it was, it was, so, a... go ahead. Uh, I was just going to say your, your follow up line in classic Booney fashion was money. You said, I've been giving this guy a hundred. It's like going to my grandma's house and her giving me a 10. Yeah, it, it was unbelievable. And the thing about it is I had all good intentions thinking, but, but he was even a better guy than I thought he was because th the natural reaction would be like, come on, Boone, this guy, I, little did I know I'm handing a hundred to a guy that can buy and sell me, <laughs> but he's so kind and so nice that he doesn't want to make me feel bad. So he accepts the hundred. So, and he was always tough on me, Raul. He was like, Booney, it's not necessary. You don't need to do that. I'm like, come on, just take it. I feel bad. You're always doing stuff for me. I appreciate it. So I'd almost force it to him. And I remember saying, take your wife out to dinner. <laughs> and then after I know all this, I'm thinking, this guy could buy and sell me and I'm forcing a hundred down his throat. <laughs> and in a way it was humiliating, but at the same time, it just... Re reaffirmed uh, what I had thought of this guy, Tom, as, as a human being tremendous, but, but it is, it's one of the all timers. And to this day, I hear that story and people say, is that true? I said, absolutely. That is true. <laughs> I, I was hoodwinked. That's one of my favorite stories of all time. And you're right. And by the way, Booty, you were doing the right thing. You were doing this kind thing. This guy stays in there. And he, I mean, this guy would show up early and stay late. And just had like this magnificent heart of a servant, right? Like servant's heart where he just wanted to help. And here he was incredibly well to do. And he had retired, I think at age 35, he had retired. He had several patents. He invented that the technology used in that tennis ball machine. That's his technology. Right. And all along, I'm thinking, it's this guy rubbing nickels together. I'm trying to pump his machine up whenever I can, because I'm like, he's got to make it so he makes some money on this machine. Little did I know, this is like a hobby. He's like Elon Musk. <laughs> 2009 after all you've been through you're finally an all-star what'd that mean to you um yeah it was a really cool moment i think when you go on the field and you actually you know you get there you go to the home run derby um the fan base in philadelphia was as you know you know having grown up there and your dad playing there it's just an incredibly intense fan base who really you know they they voted they went out and voted um, very aggressively, and I got to start at the All-Star game. And I think just getting the opportunity to run on the field was probably the coolest time because I have this great love and respect and reverence for the game of baseball. You know, from back watching, like, your dad take the field with Pete Rose and Mike Schmidt and, you know, those guys, just to get to run on that field um, as an All-Star starting the All-Star game, it was a huge moment, but also, you know, playing for the defending world champions and being in first place at the time, 
with several other, I think we had five other guys on the team. So it was just a, a really special moment. That same year you go to the World Series. The Phillies had won the World Series a year, uh, the year prior. Uh, first World Series. Take me through that. You hit 304. Yeah, that was just an incredible, I mean, it was a kind of a blur. Uh, what I, I do remember is just getting the opportunity, you know, being part of the intros, starting game one. Um, then I started game two playing the outfield. Crazy story. I It's about 20, there's 20 minutes left before the game. And I can't find my glove, my game glove. Uh, and it's full panic. And all I have is my practice glove, which, you know, as you know, Booney, it takes like a year to break in a glove. And this is my practice glove. And we get the phone call that the glove was left in Philadelphia. Somehow it fell out of my bag. So, uh, you know, I, I remember that just thinking, I cannot blow it for our fans. I cannot blow this game. And fortunately, the, the, the practice glove performed well enough that I kept using it throughout the World Series. But uh, just being a part of that moment, Yankee Stadium, the noise, the electricity, um, going up one game. You know, I remember Chase hitting couple homers and going up one nothing and just letting your mind wander for a second. We're going to be world champions. Um, and then going from that to losing the World Series and hearing the deafening silence where you could hear them celebrating on the field. It was like the it was the worst feeling of my professional careers losing that World Series. It took months to get over it. Isn't it amazing? And I've talked about it so many times on this show, probably to nauseam. The audience is probably sick of hearing about it, but it just gives you, you played 19 years. You talk about that world series you got to, and, and the, the excitement of being there. And there's nothing like a world series in Yankee stadium. I was fortunate enough to play in one. I, I got beat as well. And I know that deafening silence, but isn't it amazing in our game? How hard it is not only to get to a World Series, but to be a world uh, a world champion. Unbelievable. It's incredibly difficult. It's just this appreciation. I mean, your incredible career and getting to go there once and having felt the same feeling. I was fortunate enough only to work for the Dodgers front office for five years. And in those five years, we went to the World Series three times and won one. So, I mean, even those great Dodger teams from 2016 to present, I mean, there's been one World Series one. It's just, it gives you this tremendous appreciation for how difficult it is. I mean, you know, the Astros just won. I think they've been to like four of the last six or something like that. And now they've won twice. But it's it's remarkable how hard it is to win and how terrible it feels. It, it always feels terrible to lose. But the deeper in October you go, the worse it feels. Would you agree with that? I agree with that. And, and it's, it, I mean, just, this is, this is to, to kind of approve our argument uh, at the winter meetings. We were sitting there when we ran into one another, I was sitting there and I was sitting with Dusty Baker and I was talking to him for about an hour. Here's the, here's the prime example. He came into the game uh, when my dad did. Wow. And, and I think it's around 71 as a player. He's been managing for, it seems like, 100 years. It's 2022, and he finally won a World Series. That's how hard it is to do it. You've got to be in the game that long sometimes. And even some guys that were in the game that long, they still haven't won one either. It's amazing. It's incredible how hard it is. And by the way, I know that we will both say this or feel this way. Congrats to Dusty. It's been a long time coming, but just all the great teams that he's navigated and for that to have been his first world series championship for for the the level of excellence and greatness that he has consistently achieved where every guy to a man that i know that's played for dusty baker loves playing for him and we're running they run through a wall for him and for him to get this first opportunity hats off to him congratulations but to your point it's so difficult to win one. it really is um you go on. You go on to play for the Yankees uh, in 2012. You go back to Seattle, and then your final year. You're 42 years old. Um, you start off with the Angels. You finish up in KC. I don't know how you did it, Raul, to 42. I know how my knees started feeling at about 36. Yeah, we play different positions, but uh, I don't know how you did it for that long. Uh, you hit 29 homers. At how old were you? 41. Uh, 40, 41. Yeah. Yep. 
which is remarkable in that final season for you. Uh, you go from the angels, you go to KC um, is kind of the writing on the wall. You're 42. Did you, do you feel physically that it's kind of the end for me now? Was there something definitive? Yeah. I guess is my answer. Yeah. I had eye surgery that off season Booney and I didn't, you know, we went to spring training. I figured I'll get my timing. I just wasn't picking up spin anymore. I could, I could hit a fastball, but I could not pick up spin. So and in addition to that, I started realizing that we had guys like CJ Crone and being around Trouty and, and, you know, Cole Calhoun. I started realizing that I enjoyed helping them more than I enjoyed doing it myself. Unless the game was on the line, then it, like the adrenaline boost, it was, you know, that competition was there again. But I started really um, embracing the role as being more like a player, coach, mentor. And so I was just fortunate enough to you know, have been on the Angels at the beginning of the season. I got let go by the Angels, and I wound up signing with the Royals and getting the opportunity to, to mentor some of those guys. And one of the greatest moments for me as a player that was retiring was playing against the Angels. You know, my boys on the Angels and my boys on the Royals playing each other in the postseason. And, and knowing that you had some small part in that, um, but it wasn't even the production on the field. It was more behind the scenes and mentorship and coaching and helping the, you know, the players kind of see the best version of themselves. So um, that was a really cool moment. But I knew at the beginning of that year, I knew that I wasn't going to play anymore. And quite frankly, I wasn't good anymore. So <laughs> I probably shouldn't have done it. But I also the emotional side of it, you just found so much more joy in helping others than you did in doing it yourself. That's when I knew. Awesome career, over 2,000 hits, over 300 homers, over 1,200 ribbies, and uh, the route of which you took, it's it's really remarkable that the more and more I look at it. You played in you played in it. You started in the 90s and we all know today's game is much different than the era uh, me and yourself came up in over the 19 years uh, for you in the big leagues. What's changed the most and what is the game still missing? really good question. I think what's changed the most was, you know, obviously over time, the influence of the data um, and, and how I think how much more difficult it's become to hit because not just because of pitch usage and stuff has gotten, you know, better than ever, but also the defensive positioning, it, it makes it, I mean, you know, we we're down doubles and triples or, or well down at the major league level. And that's a direct, you know, directly correlated to the opposite of the umbrella defense, right? That we talked about <laughs> earlier in the game. <laughs> so guys are playing no doubles, you know, in the second inning. Uh, so it's getting harder and harder to slug. But also they know if they have five years of data on you, they know, Booney, if, if you're facing Madison Bumgarner and he throws you this pitch and he executes, you're going to hit it to this area over here. And so I think that that has made it, um, has changed a lot. Um, and, and also, you know, the velocity is, is, you know, harder than ever for sure. But at the same time, we had guys that threw a hundred, we didn't have as many, but those guys were probably 70% fastball guys where now you have a bunch of guys that throw a hundred and it's like 40%, 45%. So every other pitch you're seeing some type of ungodly breaking ball and, and, you know, to keep you off of that fastball. I think that that's been some of the biggest um, differences in the game. That's made it harder, you know, the optimization and the efficiency of the front offices to try to um, impact the game. They're just trying to win baseball games as they should. Another interesting Raul Abanez footnote, 2014. I found this fascinating. You interviewed with the Rays uh, to manage their ball club and you're actually uh, in the final three candidates, you'd never played for the Rays before. And I was going over this and I'm going, well, you know, I can see that if Raul played for uh, a team for a long time and at the very end on his way out, and you talked about the mentoring and, and that was something you love to do is to kind of pass on what you had learned and the journey you'd been on to the younger players. I think that's a really cool thing. And I, and I see that in your persona. I see that in Raul Abanez. Now, if I'm in that organization, hey, let's let's interview Raul for the future and see what's going on here. But you got interviewed by the Rays, a team that you had never been affiliated with. Take me through that interview process. What's it like? 
So, yeah, yeah. So my agent calls me, says that the Rays want to interview for a managing job. I said, I'm not going to manage. And he says, just take the interview. Um, you never know. And so I, I go, sure, I'm, I'm going to, I'll take the interview. Managing is something that I, was always in the back of my mind that I kind of wanted to do. Uh, so we do go through the interview process. It's a phone interview. Um, Eric Neander's there, Matt Silverman. Um, I think Heim was on the call as well. And, and oh, I'm sorry. I skipped how I got there. How I got there was in 2011, the off season, I was still playing and I was talking to the Yankees and I was talking to the Rays and I was talking, we were talking to the Orioles. My agent says, Hey, why don't you fly down, have lunch with Andrew Friedman and Eric Neander? And I said, sure. So we flew down, had this incredible lunch, two hours, two and a half hour lunch, had such a blast the entire time. So I walk out, my agent goes, how did it go? I go, great. He goes, oh, oh, so so. what do you think? I go, oh, no, no, they're not going to sign me, but I have two new friends. Um, <laughs> that's so. in Raul fashion. That's <laughs> That sounds exactly like you. <laughs> so so they wound up not signing me, but I, that's how it happened. I think 2014 was the last year Andrew was there, and it was probably Eric and Andrew behind the scenes, and, and you know, Eric called for the interview. So I go through the interview process on the phone, um, I get a call back and they said, you're in the, you're in the final three. And I go, who did you guys interview? <laughs> I, did, I got into the final three. So um, hang up the phone. I go to my wife and I'm like, Hey, guess what? We're living in Seattle at the time. Guess what? I'm, I'm in the final three. You know, there's this great opportunity in Tampa. We can get back to Florida. Um, and what do you think? And my wife said, you said you weren't going to, be traveling anymore, living that life anymore. I've got her, you know, she drops that on me. My daughters are in the room. They start crying. They're like, you said you weren't going to do this anymore, dad. I've got RJ, my oldest son, who's like, you better take that job because he's, you know, baseball. So there's like chaos in our, in our house. And it was the longest three days of my life to call back and have to pull my name um, from contention and consideration. Um, but it was just a great opportunity and I couldn't be more thankful to them. And we're still friends to this day with, with the guys, you know, in, in Tampa, really great people. Speaking of Andrew Friedman and uh, you end up working for the Dodgers in 2016, special assistant to Andrew Friedman. Um, <clears throat> tell me what that job consisted of and it'll bring us to your current job and we'll get to that. But uh, you said you got to, we, we talked about the World Series and the quest for the World Series as a player and how hard it is and and how unbelievably what a grind it is to not only get there, but to win one. Um, you had the opportunity as an executive to win one with the Dodgers. Just as fulfilling. You think um, what was well, first of all, was going to the World Series as fulfilling as a player? Was there a difference? My dad, I, I witnessed this with my dad, Raul, in, in uh, what was it, 19? When did Washington win? 19. Yeah, I think it was 19. And uh, he had won the World Series in 1980 with the Phillies. I remember I was a kid. Some of my, you know, some of my greatest memories was, was growing up uh, in Philadelphia, watching those those teams with you mentioned Luzinski and Rose and Schmidt and Carlton. And to win that World Series, I remember being on the float in Philadelphia and how cool that was for me as a kid. I just thought every kid got to do it. Yeah, I just go to work with my dad. And this is what you do. You get on the float when they win. But as a player, I could only imagine what it's like winning. But in 2019, when that World Series was going on and Washington was was inching closer and closer to winning, I remember being with my dad and he was so emotional at the time. And I remember they won and there's Bob Boone in tears. I'm going, Dad, you're not even on the field. He goes, I can't explain it, Brett. He said that the time you put in on this side of the ledger and just the fact that I was a little part in this, I said, what's it like compared to 1980? He goes equal. He said, I've been waiting a long time to win it on this side of the ledger. You know, doing it as a player. I don't know if you could ever uh, replace that with anything else as a player, he said. But if there's anything that's just as close, it's what I just witnessed right now winning this World Series and just being a little bit of a part of it. I think at that time he was the, his I think his uh, his label was vice president. You know, he, he kind of did a lot. He shuffled. He did. A, he wore a lot of hats, did a lot of different things for the Nationals. But I remember seeing that emotion with him. 
And, and, and that's what he told me. He said, I, I don't know if it's as fulfilling as 1980. He goes, I don't remember back then that well, he said, but, but I couldn't imagine anything being cooler right now than, than what I'm feeling. Yeah. That, that is just awesome to hear that he experienced it from both sides of it. And I'm, I'm sure he's, I'm, you know what? I'm sure he's right. And you know, when you're part of the front office, you, you work with these really great people, Andrew and, and all the guys at one point, it was Andrew and Farhan and Alex Anthopoulos, Josh Burns, Brandon Gomes, um, Alex Slater. Like you have all these really great people that are really, really smart working their tails off. It's a relentless job, you know, the job of general manager or president of baseball ops, but to just know that you played some small role and some small part in that, when two years ago, when a young prospect was in double A, you had a really meaningful conversation with us, with him and it impacted the way he performs and plays at the big league level or, you know, some trade acquisition that you played a tiny, tiny role in. Um, it's incredibly rewarding and fulfilling. And at the same time, it's so hard. Um, it's one of the most humbling things I've ever done is, you know, evaluating players and, and um, especially on the amateur side, the scouting side of it is so challenging and so difficult. And you never quite know for sure, which guy is going to be the guy. And, you know, there's some dark horse in the back that nobody's looking at and He, you know, pulls to the front and all of a sudden he becomes a performer at the big league level. So it's incredibly rewarding. Um, and it's, you know, once the game starts, one of the things that's really hard from that side of it is you really have no control the players have to play and perform. So I can only imagine all the times that you and I pissed off people in the front office for rolling over or grounding into a double oh, play. Unbelievable. <laughs> I sit there and yell at teams that I'm not affiliated with. <laughs> yes, exactly. Um, 2021, you're in your current role. Uh, you're the senior vice president of on-field operations for Major League Baseball. First of all, explain to me what your job entails and tell me, how did you get to that position? So um, it was after the COVID year. Um, we got, I got a phone call uh, from Andrew, um, you know, to talk about this opportunity where Chris Young, CY's former role, uh, what, what he was doing, what he was a part of doing. Uh, my initial reaction was that I, you know, loved what I was doing, uh, which I did absolutely love working for the Dodgers and for Andrew. Uh, but I viewed this role, and you said it at the beginning, I, I viewed it as, a, as an opportunity to serve our great game that's that's given us so much. And um, and hopefully, you know, build some bridges with on the towards the player side and, and mend some fences and uh, work together. Um, on different initiatives and, and for, you know, the stuff that's happening on the field. So, um, you know, currently what we do is we do gather feedback and, and you know, have our ear to the street, so to speak, with uh, and are very attentive to what managers, coaches, front offices, players, what they're thinking, gathering input, you know, from the player side and from the dugout side uh, and trying to implement it so that we could, you know, move creatively and thoughtfully to uh, make decisions about this game uh that that everybody can feel good about and feel comfortable and um and you know it's, it, what i'm my current role is really about growing the game uh and and you know like i said before working together with people so a lot of the rule changes that are happening we've given we have a former player group at the office rajay davis joe martinez gregor blanco um cc sabathia dan otero uh jimmy rollins will soon you know be a part of it as well and so just kind of giving input on rule changes or things that could help us even from on the marketing side, we work with the, you know, the, the marketing group, uh, the player marketing group. Um, so, you know, just trying to anything that we can do to help grow our great game and continue the progress to where we're working together uh, with, with, you know, with players um, and people on the field working together and not against each other. Work with Michael Hill, uh, if I'm not mistaken, and would it be fair? Is this a fair assessment? Are you the number two cop in baseball? I am not. <laughs> I'm not. I, I did not. I deny that booty. I deny that. And my, you got you got to deal with you got to deal with clowns like Aaron Boone, who's getting thrown out of games all the time. 
that that would be Mr. Hill is the disciplinarian. <laughs> um, that's that's not our department. That's not the former player group department. <laughs> Although uh, I do see, I do, the, I do see the emails of of uh, Aaron's emails uh, going around again. I'll, I'll get to see those videos. Uh, but no, I am not in the discipline area. He cracks me up because we'll talk about it. I talk to him, you know, when I because nowadays I don't see, I, I don't get to see Aaron too often. I get to see him. You know, we usually keep in contact during the season, and you know, we'll maybe have a a week or bi weekly call just to check out how the kids are doing, stuff like that. I kind of stay away from him. Uh, you know, when things aren't going well and, and, uh, I, I actually stay away from when things are going well. Cause I think he'll blame me if they, if they turn, if I, if I give him a phone call just to see how my brother's doing, but, uh, uh, in your role, um, all your experience, do you, do you try to put yourself in the player's position when making decisions or when giving always. your input? Yeah. Always. Yeah. Always. It always comes from a player perspective. It's, you know, uh, whatever we think about is not only from a player perspective when you and I were playing Boney, but also hearing from players directly and reaching out and going, Hey, what do you, what are your thoughts on this? Are you guys seeing this? Um, and just getting the feedback and perspective from the guys who are on the field, as you know, the guys who are living it in the dugout, you know, they're the ones that are living this every day. It's not just the players, but it's also the coaches and managers and, you know, the on-field personnel, they're the ones that are living it every day. Uh, so I always try to put on a player hat and try to give input based off of, you know, what's best in the best interest of the game, but also from a player perspective where, you know, you, you could see where things might get, a, might get snagged um, because, you know, you're thinking like a player. So you, you never take the player hat on. It's, it's tear player hat off. Um, and you're always trying to approach it from that perspective. It's going to be interesting next year. The three rule changes, it's the base size. And, and I always do now, you know, as you, as we get older, uh, when you first get out of the game, it seems like, <clears throat> at least from my perspective, I always react. No, keep the game. You want to, you want to change it uh, the, as little as possible, but I'm a realist as well. And as time goes on, the game evolves, society evolves, things change, things are different. And um, I look at the bases you know, now I try to look at it very through a clear lens. Okay, bigger bases. Well, first thought is that's kind of goofy. The bases have been the same size the other time. Okay, maybe in the future, maybe they're a little safer. Then I think from an offensive player, I go, better for me. I get to the base a little bit quicker. I get to second base a little bit quicker. Not that's going to make a difference on a daily basis, but maybe three times a year, I'm safe on that bang, bang play to first rather than out. So as a player, I think, as an offensive player, I think I like the bigger bases. Pitch clock. Well, well, first of all, what's your perspective on the base change? Yeah, the base change is really based off. Oh, no pun intended. Ha, see what I just did there? Um, but the ba- <laughs> I, I did. <laughs> the base changes are are really based off of player health and safety first and foremost. And to your point, that could be you know, the getting you a little bit closer to the base is probably, you know, that's going to be there. It's going to be on the margins, right? There's probably something there, but it was really player health and safety. It was just the response of first basemen that are getting, you know, stepped on and cleated or that play up the line that throw up the line from the shortstop, you know, the, or the pitcher or the third baseman that takes you up the line where, you know, guys are, breaking their arms and, and, you know, these guys are bigger and faster and stronger. Um, and so those collisions are, are just not, they've never been good, but now more so than ever before. Um, and also around the bases, right? When you're tagging guys, you're seeing a lot more guys that are obstructing the base, blocking the base because of replay. Um, so I think just having the bigger base for giving the, the base runner an extra three inches to dive to the edge of the bag is, um, it's really player health and safety driven first and foremost. And then, like I said before, there's probably going to be some marginal um, offensive help um, in it. That, that's, that's where I'm at on the basis, but it's really health and safety driven. And the other one is the pitch clock. It's going to be interesting. I think that it's been implemented a little, uh, implemented a little bit in the minor leagues as, as long as you're coming up, um, a certain way, like, Hey, we've got to do this in a swift pace. Uh, I don't really see a problem for the younger generation for this, for this, uh, 
for this pitch clock. It's going to be interesting to, for me to see the veteran hitter, the the Raul Abanez at 42 in his 19th year, who has a routine, how he hits, how he steps out of the box, how he prepares himself and has been preparing himself his entire career to all of a sudden, okay, there's a different set of rules now. You know, for a Wainwright who's 39, 40 years old, uh, I'm talking about the pitcher for the St. Louis Cardinals, who I'm not saying he's fast or slow, but all of a sudden, if he is a slow worker, all of a sudden, because of the rules, has to be a fast worker. Uh, it's going to be really interesting, the dynamic, the back and forth, the the, the called times outs, how, how the umpires interacted. I think it's something that probably definitely is going to going to eventually get to where the game wants it is speeding up the games uh, pace of play with is without a doubt going to be better. And I think beneficial in the long run, it's going to be interesting for me in the short term, how it works. And then uh, the third thing is the shift. And it's interesting to me, the shift uh, because in our generation, you know, we shifted on, on certain guys in extreme situations, but for the most part, it was more shading. I don't know. The interesting thing for me from an infielder's perspective is I heard you can't be on the grass. And that's a little bizarre to me. It's, it's going to be fun to watch how this really plays out. But I think the exciting thing for me is you're going to have to play your position more. So you're going to see what a true shortstop is because he's truly playing the position where now half the time, and I'm sure they're going to be pushing the parameters on the rules. I'm sure in certain situations, that second baseman is going to be within an inch of that second base bag on that side to stay within the rules. But uh, I, I don't know. I think it's going to be something that, that plays out and you'll be watching this all your, your, uh, your opinion on those final two um, rules that I just laid out. Yeah, so I mean, as far as the the, the shifting goes, it's really just um, an attempt. But actually, both of these rules are really just an attempt to. G- the game has evolved, and it's evolved right before our eyes. It's really just an attempt to get baseball back to the best version of itself. Um, which you know, you watch the games in the seventies and the eighties, and even the early nineties, and that was the pace of play uh, that was that was happening. It was pitcher would throw the ball grab the ball, get back on the mound. You and I were both coming up and I was a catcher and we try to push the pace and the tempo of, of the pitchers because we knew that if a pitcher threw the ball more frequently or the quicker he threw the ball, that our defense was on our on their toes and, and more attentive. Um, so it's really just an attempt to get the game back to the best version of itself. Um, and and it's not so much, it, it's going to shit like in the minor leagues, what we've seen, Booney, is that it's shaved off you know, a significant amount of time from the game, but having gone to many of these games, you don't, you just feel that it's a crisper pace of play. You don't feel like you're losing anything. You don't feel like, Oh, this game only took two hours and 42 minutes. You don't necessarily feel that. You just feel that you can't look down at your phone and send a text because the ball gets put in play immediately or you're going to miss something. So it's just a crisper pace of play and trying to get the game back to the best version of itself. And you're not turning forward the clock. It's more like we're turning back the clock a little bit, uh, just taking control of some of these um, issues. And, And so from the shifting perspective, it's definitely an attempt to, you know, help the offense, but also put more athleticism on the field. Uh, you know, to your point, it's, you know, getting guys who are second basemen that play second base and, you know, shortstops that, that could be make more athletic plays instead of standing exactly where the ball's getting hit. You know, let's, let's, let's showcase the athleticism of these players today. These guys are, you know, we're, we're probably in the most athletic and, and the um, most explosive, explosively athletic athletes in the game. Uh, in the game's history. And so just putting the game back in their hands a little bit where you, you could still shift, you could still shade, but we're going to s- hopefully see more athletic plays um, and, and let these guys display their, their incredible athleticism. I agree with you on the athleticism. You know, I remember my time coming up and getting drafted in 1990 and, uh, and the era I came up in, and I was always very critical. 
you know, like maybe a lot of us are of, of guys that play a similar position to us. You know, I'd always be really critical of the second baseman throughout my career. And I'd watch and I'd say, he's good. He's good. He's not. He's not. He's not. The more and more I look at the athlete today. Everybody's really good. They're really good. They're brought up differently. You know, when I was coming up, when once I was a second baseman, that's what I was till the day I retired. I played second base. Now these kids in the minor leagues, they got them playing second, short, third. They're on a rotate so they can handle all three different positions. I remember being I was uh, with MOB Network at the at the combine this year and did a couple segments for them. And I, re- I remember just being out in the middle infield with a mic on. And you know how that is, Raul. It, it's more of you're being an entertainer now and bringing it to them. But I'm watching these kids around me, these 18, 19 year old uh, prospects, you know, going to be top picks. A lot of them, not a clue in the world how to play shortstop. But you talk about the athleticism, the way they move, the arm strength. And I just remember after doing those segments, wow, I don't remember the guys being like this when I was getting drafted in 1990. Yeah, athletically, these guys are – it's incredible how good they are, how many games they play, how polished they are at a really early age. I mean, you know, Jake – did Jake just graduate from – is he still at Princeton? No. He's in uh, oh. he's 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 in the minor leagues. He's going back for his third pro season. Oh, that's right, man. What am I saying? Yeah, that's right. So he's he's in the he's in pro ball. So just from that generation, right? You see, growing up in San Diego, um, you know, when I was coming up, we had in our conference, we had three guys that threw ninety on RJ's high school team. You know, this is three years ago. We had six guys who threw ninety. Six guys on one team, and. You know, when I was coming up, it was my entire district had three guys. So just watching how athletic, how strong they are uh, and and how much more polished they are. It's it's really incredible. And it's a tribute to, you know, all the work that's being done behind the scenes and, you know, the youth, how competitive youth sports has gotten. Uh, but, you know, you're you're asking guys it used to be, you know, we want to get somebody drafted and have them develop their power. And now you're having a tough time drafting guys if they don't already have power, which is another conversation to have at a later date. Well, Raul Abanez, it's, it's been fun, man, catching up. What a great career. Uh, you're doing a great job now in a, in a brand new role. And uh, I couldn't imagine a, a more well-diverse and a guy that's, that's been there, done that more than you to be in that role. It was a pleasure having you on. I appreciate it. And what we do each and every Boone podcast at the end of the Boone podcast as we kick it back to the voice of the Boone podcast. That voice is Dan Levy. Dan? That's going to do it for the Brett Boone podcast. My name is Dan Levy, the technical director, producer, voice of the Boone podcast, EP, executive producer, Rich Herrera, digital. All gets uploaded by Liz Landry. Do us a favor, share the Boone podcast, neighbors and friends and all those that love sports. Make sure you subscribe. Never miss an episode. And while you're at it, give us a five-star rating and share your feelings about the podcast by leaving a review on whatever platform you listen to the show. For all of us here on the Boone Podcast, he is Brett Boone. You can find him on social media at the Boone29. I'm Dan Levy, B-A-S-S on air. That is base on air, all of my social medias. Thanks for listening. We'll do it again soon. Have a great one.